We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. Holy smokes. Yeah. Feels real. It All does. right. It's our very, very first show from Iowa. I think that's that's so cool. I'm a big fan of firsts. They don't always go well, but I think this one, it's going to go really good. Like your joke of Iowa? Yeah. Like yeah. Iowa. I can't mm-hmm. believe he yeah. said that is what these people were thinking. I, yeah. I no, Not that I... Anyways, Iowa this is will the furthest... show him outside. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> this is the furthest south we've traveled as Midwest Murder. It's kind of a cool deal. So we're, we're, yeah. we're happy to celebrate that. Yeah. We're recording at the legendary Marquee in downtown Sioux City. Where Big live a... music is better. Live I music agree. is better. Craft mm-hmm. beer is colder. Mitch and the gang here keeping it real. Thanks for taking care of us. We appreciate you guys. Just like we appreciate everyone who takes the time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. Those comments, good, bad, in between, we like all of them and we're willing to read them. No, we prefer to not be insulted during the in, in, during the right. review portion, Sometimes they but cause it happens. But it, it happens. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. So, but what's, what I love is when we get five stars and then insulted. Yeah, so, just, like those backhanded good. compliments. They're so great in life, <laughs> you know. That, right. Yeah. Anyways, wait, who, you can't get by without those backhanded compliments. No. Hopefully you don't find too many today. Don, I'm kind of curious, the reviews on iTunes, what are people saying right now about Midwest murder? Well, it is, we, we do really, really appreciate it. And it does big things for us uh, in the podcast. It helps us trend. So my personal thank you. We greatly appreciate you guys taking time to do so. Deanna KK, five stars heart emoji. Being from the Midwest, it's so refreshing to hear Midwesterners. I think you're both very charming. Oh, gosh. Oh, Don, you're charming. First time. More than you, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like the research you do into the cases. I just have one suggestion. Sometimes I get lost in Jonah's stories. I'm not sure if it's too many details, going too fast, too flowery language. I'm not sure, but I get lost. Like Don said once, I need a flow chart. Nice. Okay. Well, yeah. five stars. You're getting lost. I think you're getting lost in my very charming voice. It must be. Yeah, it must yeah, be. It must it's got to be. be. And you, you do, you have done a, quite a few cases where there are many names. Yeah. And as a, as the writer, it's hard to, it's hard to, I don't know, not keep a flow chart for yourself. So. Well, it can be. Yeah. And, and I do take notice in cases where there get to be an abundance of names, we make, I think, both active choices to eliminate some of the extra names we might otherwise sort of sure. put in there, whether it be like a judge or, or a detective right, or things right. like that. Like I, I do actively try to not use yeah. more names than I have to. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we really appreciate that. Deanna KK. And There's then no such thing as too many details though. I'm for me. And then T O S T O K five stars. Tokestock. Yeah. I, you know, I just want to guess, I don't want to be that guy. Um, addicted. 
My friend said she was listening to this podcast and it was about murders that happened in our area. Right away, I was not interested. One day driving to work, I decided why not? And I turned it on. I am not a fan of the truth of the crime shows like CSI. Same. I think they're garbage. Um, and they insult my intelligence. That's my words, not hers. A little harsh. Oh, no, that's your, no, that's her that's words. Mine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. But this true crime podcast has me addicted. Hearing true stories from the area I live in it. I, I live in is somehow thrilling. It really makes you think about the things that happen around here that no one expects. Robbery, murder, kidnapping. We may be North Dakota nice, but there are always people that can do heinous crimes that show the opposite side. I cannot give this podcast enough praise. It keeps you listening from beginning to end and you don't want to stop. Wow. Thank you. That's super cool. Well, very cool. Thanks for yeah. taking the time to write that. You know, it's weird. I liked CSI in the very beginning, back in like the mid 2000s. And then I got turned on to other shows like The Wire and stuff. And I think once I found those, I, I did not like uh, the CSIs the, more. I don't, because, I'm not even a true crime fan. Yeah, and somehow I, I found and, my way into and this. somehow don't have lights and they can only see things with flashlights. Yeah, no, super, super accurate. I am a big fan of flashlights. It's probably why I liked the show to begin with. All the flashlight action and that really spoke to me. We've also redesigned some graphics and what? added some new ones. Yeah, I'm a big fan of flashlights, okay. Don Palumbo. Finding things out about me. All the time we spend on the road, you didn't know my love for flashlights. Flashlights and vacuums. <laughs> but we've gone local in merch. You can get merch right now at too many. That's T-O-O, too many shirts.com slash Midwest hyphen murder. There's all kinds of cool stuff there. And we are going to be adding some new things. No big promises, but maybe some joggers, maybe I a zip up, a little bit of this, a little mm-hmm. bit of that. It's going to be really cool. Yeah. And the company that does our merchandise is a local business mm-hmm. and we like working with local companies. You and can also, they are awesome. They're fantastic. Yeah. Soft, great material. You yeah. can also buy us a hot dish right now at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. It really helps us kind of pays for gas, pays for, helps fund the show, helps us keep the lights on. If you want to support the show in an extra way, that's where you do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. And this episode of Midwest Murder is brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. Have you ever wondered how the stories of the people you love most will live on after they're gone? Midwest Memoirs is here to help you capture the most precious memories of your loved ones as told in their voice, their stories, their voice. And this is done with research of your family and completed through a professionally guided interview in a comfortable studio setting using state-of-the-art recording equipment. The most important stories we'll ever hear are those of the people we love most. You can contact Midwest Memoirs today on Facebook or Instagram. Our story tonight takes place at the very turn of 1975, into 1976. Since this takes place in 75 and 76, some of the big moments in 1975, of course, biggest story of the year on April 30th, the Vietnam War, the fall of Saigon, the war ends as communist forces take Saigon, resulting in mass evacuations of Americans and South Vietnamese. As the capital is taken, South Vietnam surrenders unconditionally. Also in 1975, the third and final boxing match was held between Muhammad Ali and Smokin' Joe Frazier, the thriller in Manila. In 75, Saturday Night Live premiered. And the most popular toy of the year was the Putt-Putt Speedway by Mattel and Pet Rocks by yeah, Pet Rocks sold 1.5 million that Christmas. They were invented yeah, by Gary yeah. Dahl. We've we've actually been in 75 before uh, okay. in, in stories. And I remember, of course, Joe Frazier, but also the Pet Rocks. Like 
I didn't was, have was one. Li- was life that hard? That like, you needed a rock that it was, with a it name? Was like, here, eyes? I got this pet rock. And, you know, put googly eyes on it. And there you <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, just right? say, like, a couple of googly eyes on a rock. It's a pet. It's cool. <laughs> And then in 1976, the Apple Computer Company is formed by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. The exceptionally popular film was released in the United States. You may have heard of it. The way he's you like, may have heard of exceptionally, it. Exceptionally, I mean, kind yeah. of popular. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of it. But did you know that Stallone wrote that movie and he completed the script in just three and a half days with a Bic pen on paper? Not with a typewriter. He did that OG the VHS was introduced in Japan. It made its way to the United States in 1977. Also in 1976, the son of Sam started killing people in New York City. David Brickwitz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Andre the Giant set the world record for number of beers consumed in a single sitting. That's a good moment, 1976. R.I.P. Andre. I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to have to salute real quick. In the fashion trends in 76, I do kind of miss the fashion of the, the 70s medallions. Since you were there, I mean... Yeah, like. I, I miss it. I, I miss it. I bring it back. I think it's coming back. Medallions, polyester, butterfly collars, bell bottoms, sandals, flower pattern, patterned dress shirts, and sideburns. And the women's professional uniform that year was a blazer, cowl neck sweater, and slimmed down skirt. The styles of 1976. New Year's Eve is generally considered a time of great joy. For many of us, it's a time of tradition and intimate gatherings with those we love most. For others, it's a big-ass party. And for some of us, it's both. It just feels like one of those days where we're all collectively turning the page of life in celebration of the year and in anticipation of the next. For most, it's a time of hope, parties, champagne roasts, fireworks, happiness... If we're lucky, maybe even a little romance. Don't get me wrong. I understand some folks will treat New Year's Eve like any other day, and plenty of people have to work on January 1st. Big thanks to all the retail champions, nurses, and essential people out there that work on those holidays. I appreciate you. But everyone else clocking in on the holidays, they're there clocking in so the rest of us can enjoy it. But let's be real. New Year's Eve is a massive day of widespread celebration and parties. In the neighborhood of Greenwood, Indiana, there's no celebration happening at the residence of the Charles Robertson family. While most everyone in the area is having a party, Charlie and his family are fast asleep with lights out by 10 p.m. Charlie, the manager at a local Payless shoe store, works early on New Year's Day. So the kids don't get to party or what? No, nobody is. If Charlie's, if it's lights out for Charlie, it's lights out for everybody in that house. Well, he seems fun already. So this wasn't unusual for the Robertsons. Charlie and his wife, Carol, were quiet people, nice and easy to get along with, but far from outgoing. Parents to four young children, Mike, age seven, Dale, six, Gary, five, and Sissy, age four. Now at age 45 and 41, respectively, Charlie and Carol were considered a bit older to be parents of so many young kids. Nevertheless, the two were devoted to their family and the Robertson children, who could often be seen riding their big wheels through the quiet neighborhood, were very well liked by other parents. Also staying in the Robertson home is 18-year-old Sarah Cindy White, the Robertsons' live-in babysitter. 
On December 31st, 1975, at 10.38 p.m., a blazing fire was reported to police by Patrick Laval. The address of the fire? 24 Sayer Drive, home of Charles Robertson. By the time neighbors see the fire, the entire midsection of the one-story, three-bedroom home is ablaze, billowing, 30-foot flames have already reached the roof. The massive inferno spreads a glow across the neighborhood. People are quickly alerted. Within moments of seeing the fire, neighbors rush to the Robertson home. After kicking out a window, three men attempt to enter through a bedroom, but they're pushed back by intense smoke and heat. There's no chance of getting inside. Lynn Kuhn, standing among the onlookers, helplessly watching the fire, hears screaming and crying from the backyard. She quickly runs around to the backyard fence to see Cindy White. She's crying hysterically and shouting, Get them out! Get them out! Charlie! Carol! Cindy looks clearly injured. She's cut, blackened, and and blistered from the fire, wearing a torn and slightly singed nightgown. Cindy White is screaming and fighting in an effort to go back inside the home. Several of the men rush forward and intercept Cindy, but she fights back, desperate to get in. It takes three men to restrain her until police arrive and Cindy is placed in the back of a car. Not under arrest, mind you, but something had to be done to calm her panic and prevent her from running inside. Yeah, well, and that's, and that's normal. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's not under arrest. Firefighters, along with emergency personnel, arrive quickly, but sadly... They never really had a chance to save the Robertson family. The two parents and their four young children, six people in total, were consumed by the fire. It was the single worst fire disaster in the history of Greenwood and one of the worst tragedies in the United States during the New Year's holiday. So that must have, I mean, if, that, if it burned that quickly... It doesn't I mean, always burn that. It's not normal to burn that fast no. and that intense. Mm-mm. No. Arriving on scene, and, and this is, of course, this is a small town. It's a big scene. Everyone knows about the fire. It's New Year's. Even the mayor shows up. And the mayor, quote, this is a terrible sadness for the city of Greenwood on what should have been a night of joy. En route to the hospital, a charred and babbling Cindy White kept repeating, they're still inside. They're still inside. The whole family, the whole family's inside. Get my children. My, non- get my children. That's what she was saying. Get my children. Cindy White, whose life to this point had been one long string of tragedies, was placed in intensive care in serious but stable condition. Badly burned, grief-stricken, and in a state of shock, it would be another week before police could interview Sydney to learn what happened. According to a nurse at the hospital, Cindy said she fell asleep on the couch and awoke to see the Christmas tree on fire. She ran to wake Carol and the kids and was told by Carol to climb out the bedroom window and the children would be passed through. They never came through. The fire chief speculated that the Robertsons never had a chance to get out of the house. Autopsies confirmed their deaths were a result of carbon monoxide and smoke inhalation. It's likely they were unconscious but alive when the fire swept over them. 
It seemed the family attempted to escape, but were overwhelmed by smoke and carbon monoxide. Charles was laying on the couch. The boys were lined up in a row in the hallway. Carol was lying in the doorway of her bedroom, and four-year-old Sissy was in between the beds. Each one wearing pajamas and out of their beds, the family clearly tried to get out. On the initial walkthrough, it seems clear the fire began in the northwest corner of the living room near the artificial metal Christmas tree. Although there is no suspicion of arson as a matter of protocol, the home is investigated by state arson inspectors as well as electrical experts. Unfortunately, the Robertson home did not have a fire warning system. The smoke inside could have filled the home for as long as 30 minutes before the actual combustion of the flames. Well, so something is like, you don't, you don't mean like a fire alarm, but like fire detection, like fire detectors. Right. Okay. Yeah. Any sort of fire detector or warning system, <coughs> mm-hmm. they did not have anything in their home. Investigators were certain the fire began near the tree, but couldn't speak with Cindy until after the doctors gave clearance. Can I, I metal artificial, artificial Christmas tree. I, it's maybe not the right time to interject this, but. It's pretty badass. I mean, like, why are those still around? Christmas tree? Yeah, yeah. It was Maybe. poor timing, horrible timing. Horrible. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But also, if it's metal, is it really it's starting totally on, metal? Is it really starting on fire? Do you think it partied and headbanged over there in the corner? Is that what set it on fire, or wow. was all the partying it did because it was so metal? Wow. <laughs> Hear all those pity laughs you got? No, that's the, those are good. I don't think those so. Are nice warm <laughs>, laughs of appreciation. Okay. The Robertson family was laid to rest on January 6th, 1976. So you'll recall I mentioned Cindy's life has been one tragedy after the next, all strung together. In just the last handful of years, both Cindy's parents passed away. Her father died in her arms after suffering a heart attack. Several years later, Cindy's mother died of a terminal illness. The trauma from those losses led to a brief stay at a psychiatric hospital for Cindy. The Robertsons, and all their benevolence, opened their home to Cindy, offering her work and a place to stay in exchange for babysitting. Cindy took the kids to church every Sunday. Just two days before the fire at the Robertson house, Cindy's grandmother and four brothers and sisters were displaced after losing their home to a fire. So two days before the Robertson family, her grandma, who then took in, who had taken in all her siblings, siblings their house burned to the ground. They lost everything. Cindy was released from the hospital by mid-January and in a statement, which I'll summarize, said earlier, earlier in the day, she smelled smoldering. Cindy went to bed around 930 and later woke up gasping for air saw smoke and fire coming from the Christmas tree, screamed at Charlie and Carol to wake up. Carol told her to call the fire department. Cindy dialed the operator, asked for the fire department, but hung up because she couldn't breathe. Cindy then ran ran back to the bedroom, and Carol handed her the boys, but the heat was too intense to get down the hallway. After smashing a window open with her fist, she heard Carol screaming, When Cindy reached down to grab the boys, she couldn't find them. 
The next thing she remembers after that is waking up in the yard screaming. And she woke up on the couch is where she says she was sleeping, where she woke up from gasping for air. Quote, If only I would have tried to get the children out before I tried to call the fire department. Cindy went on to say the fire at her grandmother's house was apparently caused by a Christmas tree, and it seemed the same thing happened to the Robertsons. By January 26th, state and local investigators had yet to make an official ruling on the cause of the fire, Although the local fire chief said it's still believed to be accidental, his team planned to question neighbors again, as well as Cindy White. Things went quiet until Friday, February 27, 1976, when police made an arrest and charged Cindy White with one count of murder by arson. It came after another very intensive investigation of the scene, Arresting officers didn't offer much detail, although the lead investigator said, quote, there were pieces of her story which didn't fit, and that led us to believe it wasn't an accident. She escaped from the fire with minor burns, while six others barely moved from their beds. Now, after terribly cold weather and snow delayed the process of investigating the actual home, The arson investigators found burn patterns on the floor beneath the carpets that indicated an accelerant was used. Chemists from the state lab identified an accelerant was used in areas of the home, including near the tree, on a rug, and in the hallway. Cindy claimed to be sleeping on the couch, the same place that Charles was found, also According to the investigation, the fire started at the foot of that very couch was where the burn pattern began from. This was not the only suspicious evidence uncovered in the aftermath of the blaze. Hidden in the ashes of the Robertson home was a very dark secret. Now, if it strikes you as odd that Cindy was only charged with the murder of Charles Robertson, hold on to that thought because some creepy shit is coming. Thank you for answering my question already. Why just the one charge? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. On March 6th, 1976, at the grand jury proceedings, the murder charges were expanded to include six counts of first-degree murder by arson. The technical explanation that placed Cindy as the perpetrator was highlighted alongside other evidence listed as, quote, personal effects. Later in mid-March, Cindy White pleaded not guilty to all six charges. A reputable local defense attorney stepped forward to take her case and won her the right to a psychiatric evaluation. But the community now had its villain for the heinous event that left the family of six dead, and Cindy White immediately became known as the arson murderess. Cindy's previous time spent in the hospital under psychiatric care, which was initially viewed with sympathy just weeks prior, 
But now that Cindy White was an arson murderess, that narrative changed into her being a mental patient. Because we were also so respectful in the 70s. Yeah. You know, just a mental patient. So it was like, oh man, this poor woman survived and, and she had to spend time in a psychiatric hospital after her parents died and we feel so bad for her. And then she gets accused of murder and like, oh man, all that time she spent in a hospital. She's a mental patient, arson murderess. Right. I mean, it changed quick. Well, I mean, kids died, you know. Yes, so for sure. So but that, sure that flip gonna... of the script, like, oh, we feel bad that right. you face trauma and we're in the hospital. Oh, wait, now we don't well, feel bad because you're didn't a mental look, we patient. Didn't, we didn't look at it that way, right? I mean... Evidently, investigators also subjected Cindy White to an interview using sodium pentothal, a.k.a. truth serum. But the judge threw that out. Maybe or maybe not because Cindy managed to pass the interview. I couldn't really tell. Cindy then agreed to a polygraph and she waived her right to self-incrimination. The admissibility of other certain evidence was still being debated by lawyers. The polygraph was only admissible if all parties agreed to it. The attorney, both defense and prosecution, as well as Cindy. And they all did. The five-hour lie detector test took place on Friday, March 16th and would only be made public if used in court. The trial was set to begin on Monday, April 19th, but a motion for insanity was filed causing a brief delay. After the dismissal of the insanity motion, a jury of seven women and five men was selected and the trial started one week later on April 26th. Hold on a second. So this is like, I mean, the same year. Yeah, they are pushing this thing. This is the oh. same year. Yeah, wow. April, right? Lie detector Friday, court Monday. We, you, oh, you think you're insane? Yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out in a week. You'll be fine. You'll it's be fine. fine. Yeah, you'll be fine. It's fine. You're, you're April 26th you get, is your court date. So over <laughs> and, the- th- And you, you say, but a motion for insanity was filed causing a brief delay. Very brief. Like, you know, 19th to the 26th. <laughs> like. Over the first few days of trial- Witness testimony from neighbors, investigators, and experts highlighted the burn pattern along with a partially depleted charred gas can that was found in the garage just outside the kitchen door. Now, this was very important. Of course, the prosecuting attorney highlighted very specifically, quote, no man would leave a gas can in a garage like that, your honor. You know, I don't, I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to touch it. I mean, yeah, no, ugh, whatever. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course, of course, no dude would ever just haphazardly put it right there and not close it all the way. Of course, no man would ever do that. Not in, certainly not in the seventies, no. Don Palumbo, no boomer, no boomer was doing that. No offense, boomers. We love you. But there was, and there was also no sign of electrical fire. So these were the, some of the because things. Because no man would let his house have the electrical just out of whack. No man <laughs> no would man. allow that. It's so silly. Like you're talking about a gas can. Like every man ever that handled a gas can is putting it away right, <laughs> the right way every time. Sure, after six right. beers, I'm, boy, you mowed I'm the sure, lawn. I'm like, sure a mispla- misplaced gas can has caused many a divorce. Right. right? I mean, and many, so- of a fi- many of fires. <laughs> Give me a break. Wow. And... 
Also highlighted, of course, the prosecution also dredged up anything they could from Cindy's past. Familial problems, foster care, poverty, alcoholism, and terrible parents. During her time as a, quote, mental patient, Cindy White was visited regularly by Carol Robertson. In fact, Carol was instrumental in helping Cindy get released from the hospital in October, just a few months before the fire. Approximately three hours before the fire at the Robertson home, Cindy White called her sister-in-law asking questions about her siblings, the house, and how the fire started. It was less than four hours after the defendant had inquired about the fire at her grandmother's house that the Robertson home was in flames. Now, I want to say, that particular conversation from what I read was very normal. If someone you know had a fire and you spoke to them a few days later, if they were close family, all the questions that Cindy asked were normal. You know, did how'd the fire start? Did you guys get a new place to stay? Did you replace all the kids' clothes? Right. You know, were well, all your clothes is, damaged in the fire? Like all, this is two days after the fire, right? right. You said two days, I think. Yes. So all yeah. none of these between Cindy and her family following that fire are unreasonable right. inquiries. I mean, however, it was weird still timing. U- if, weird you know, timing. It was right. still used, of course, by the prosecution. Now it was also shown the Christmas tree was a flame-proof variety because it was metal. Because it was totally metal. Tests within the courtroom demonstrated that the tree would actually melt before it would ignite. Doctors testified Cindy White's burns were not serious. The most significant burns of a second degree nature, meaning uh, according to what they said, uh, blistering, were on Cindy's hands. The pajamas worn by Cindy were shown to be made of a highly flammable material, yet they were almost not burned at all. On day four of the trial, the contents of Charlie Robertson's wallet found in a pair of trousers hanging in the closet were presented as evidence. Inside the wallet were the following items. $377 cash, photographs of Robertson's mother, Photographs of Robertson's wife and children. And nude photographs of Cindy White. Seems like one of these doesn't belong. I want to say I didn't see that coming, but I totally saw that coming. I was, I was just waiting for it. Something when, weird. When you, when you said that the, the, the start of the fire was at the foot of the couch, I was like, oh, Charles Robertson, he did something bad. Yeah. You might, Don... Mm. Your hunch might be right. I'm not saying he deserved it. I'm just saying he no, may of have done not. something bad. Yeah. Well, it doesn't stop there. Of course it doesn't. Why would it? Furthermore, a series of sexual love letters believed to be exchanged between Cindy White and Charles Robertson were found inside a folder in the bedroom closet. The correspondence seemed to indicate Carol Robertson had no idea what was happening behind closed doors in the Robertson home. There was a Polaroid of another nude woman that police were unable to identify. For prosecutors, this established a motive. Cindy White was a jealous vixen, a manipulative mistress that weaseled her way into an otherwise nice family, started an affair with the husband, Charles Robertson, and then lit his house on fire 
killing his entire family. Right, because he's he's a respectable man that keeps his gas can in the in the garage. So, of course, he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> nothing, of course. It was quite the prosecution package, and with the justice of four dead children at stake, an easily delivered narrative. Right. Now, I mean, if, you know, when when that is out there, I feel like you don't really have to do your homework. Right. right? No. You, right. And they, but they did the the uh, the arson investigation was legit. But once you no, can package I mean, this affair it, it, with the arson, but like that's what I mean. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a yeah. Now you're gonna love this. Of course. It was previously ruled at the start of the trial that the defense was not allowed to use any criminal history of the Robertsons. It seems like that might have been relevant because on September 21st, 1975, Cindy White accused Charles Robertson of rape. Now, I'm unsure what the extent of the investigation into that allegation was. However... I can tell you that after a time, Cindy allegedly rescinded that statement and the situation was swept under the rug and not allowed to be brought up in court and was mentioned one time that I could find in any newspaper. So the crime or the criminal history of the family, not allowed to be brought up, but her history as a quote unquote mental patient is free game. Yeah. They, cool. I mean, and, and all the naked pictures of her were paraded around in court, all mm. of her, all of her awful, terrible family history. But yeah, a man she accused of rape, you can't talk about that at trial. I'm sure, you know, and then of course, uh, you know what, Never mind. not going to go there. I was going to make a horrible, horrible comment about, you know, she was probably asking for it. You know, she was probably, you know, dressed something. Maybe she was the one that didn't put the gas can away. I'll, like, maybe that's why. I mean, like. I'll, I'll tell you this much. The notion of Charles Robertson being a rapist was an impossible thought. Hardly worth printing in newspapers, let alone mentioning in a courtroom. As the trial progressed, the polygraph examiner offered a pretty damning testimony indicating that Cindy failed to truthfully answer every major question in the exam related to the fires. There were 15 in total of the major questions, and some of them were... Do you know who set the fire at the Roberson home? Did you set the fire at the Roberson house? Did you cause the Roberson's death? Did you plan the fire? Did you spread accelerant in the Roberson's home? Is it Roberson or Roberson? I'm sorry. It's it's weird because it's with one B and my my brain wants to read Roberson. It is Roberson. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I called you out so hard there. No, no, it, I'm I'm glad you did. I, I maybe could, I should I can, just reread I could, that whole sequence. I could feel everyone thinking Everyone's it. Everyone's like, was God like, dang it! Why I noticed it. Doing I know that? they notice it. Someone's got to say something about Thank this. You. No, I'm gonna. I, I will do better, Don Palumbo. Just keep your goddamn but, gas can where it belongs. Yeah. <laughs> Last gas can joke. I, I swear. I promise. No man. Maybe actually, I'm not gonna make that promise, but I'm pretty sure. During the trial, the jury was also escorted through the charred remnants of the Robertson home so they could be shown the burn trails and patterns. Things did not look good for Cindy White. Then, she took the stand. And probably didn't do herself any favors. Throughout her sobbing two-hour testimony, Cindy White professed her love for the Robertson family and vehemently denied setting the fire. Of the children, she said, quote, I loved them and thought of them almost as my own. 
She admitted to romantic involvement with Charles, allowing him to take the photos and to having oral sex. Quote, I do almost anything Charlie asked me to. At one time, I thought I loved him. Now that I've had time to think about it, I wanted him like a father. After, Hold on. Yep. Nope. Yep. Yeah, okay. she probably shouldn't have took the stand. Well, right. Um, so she thinks of him as a father figure, but mm-hmm. also had a sexual relationship with him, right? So, I mean, I'm not sure if you need a bigger billboard, you know, to, to say we have some issues here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so regardless of whether she took the they stand or not. They didn't look at the billboards back then in the 70s, well, though, not. you know? Not these but, ones. I mean, good gravy. Like, that... that and think so of... Anybody, anybody can point that issue out. It is it is not... You typically don't have oral sex with your father figure. Right. Right? Right. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not recommended. Right. <laughs> After two hours on the stand with the defense, Cindy was questioned for another 90 minutes by prosecutors. She was among the last to be called. The final, final witnesses were three expert psychologists, one for the defense and two for the prosecution, as well as Dr. Patricia Sharpley, the head doctor from LaRue D. Carter Hospital, where Cindy White was treated. Dr. Sharpley acknowledged Cindy's mental problems, stating she suffered from, quote, a hysterical neurosis which can be manifested in such symptoms as fainting spells, partial paralysis, and considerable anxiety. The defense experts suggested Cindy had likely been mentally ill her entire life and contested Cindy could have been insane from trauma on the night of the fire while the other doctors were firm in their position. Cindy wasn't currently insane, nor was she insane at the time of setting the fire. That conclusion was reached after several interviews and hours of observing Cindy. For, I, I'm so grateful that we don't use those words anymore, like insane and hysterical. I, I mean, they're just, they've taken on such a different meaning. Um, you know, I, I've probably called one of my kids hysterical this week, you know, right. I mean, you know, it, it's just, they've taken on such different meanings. And, and now when you are describing someone's mental health or uh, mental state, they just seem really harsh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's certainly not fair to their state of mind, mm-hmm. or it doesn't even mm-hmm. sound as though it's considering what, what allowed that state of mind to exist in the right. first place. Right. What has gotten this young lady to this state of mind yeah. that is causing involuntary paralysis? Oh, she's just hysterical. One of them, one of them teenagers, it's just hysterical. You know, they, they pass out and they freeze up. And I guess teenage girls, you just don't know. Well, and that's, and that's mentals, how they, you know, they're mentals. The, that's how, that's how they described, you know, women in the twenties, right. You know, hysterical. And that was, you know, cause they couldn't, you know, they didn't say insane or whatever, but I, I don't know. I just, it's, I'm grateful that we don't say that anymore. In his closing remarks, the prosecutor said, quote, The state is not required to prove the motive, prove what final act brought the issue to a head. Probably the real motive is tied in with sex, a love triangle, and the fact that Cindy White was not paying her keep in a crowded home. He said that. That's what he said. Like he- How does that make you feel? 
like worse, like worse than, than the words hysterical and insane. Like yeah. and that just got worse. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And because tell you what, hang on, just, hold on. Just remember that he said that because we there's we're not even done unpacking shit of yet. Of course Don we're Palumbo. not. Right. There's more to unpack here yet. So you remember this prick the, prosecutor. The real motive, probably the real motive is tied in with sex, a love triangle, and the fact that Cindy White was not paying her keep in a crowded home. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Yeah. I agree. Wow. Wow. The defense argued valiantly for Cindy White, pointing out there was no true evidence the fire was actually set by Cindy, that it was shameful how the prosecution passed naked pictures of Cindy around the courtroom and paraded her family problems. Yes. Reading reading love letters as if they were an admission of guilt. They were not. Quote, these letters which the defense has read like they were criminal confessions are merely pleas for love. Is that a crime? Well, apparently to the prosecution. All of Cindy's shortcomings were put on display. The embarrassment and shame she felt over her body weight, just over 200 pounds, the ridicule and bullying she endured in high school because of her, because of her weight, because of being a family in poverty. The defense argued there was... Ample evidence that Charlie Robertson was, quote, using this little girl and she was paying 20 bucks a week in rent. Quote, Charles Robertson and Carol Robertson both had as much motive as Cindy White for setting that fire. He had too many children, too many girlfriends, and she had a husband who was unfaithful. He and argued. Hold that, on. Yep. Hold on. $20 in 1976 is about $106 today. So okay. that that girl was paying 100 bucks a week and 100 bucks a week if we're looking at it from today. Okay. Wow. Her lawyer Antcliff argued that Cindy White was in fact a seventh victim. But it would be years before anyone would learn the true depth of what made Cindy White a victim. Jurors went into deliberation at 1 p.m. Cindy was allowed to await the results at the county jail in the kitchen where she sat chain-smoking cigarettes. A reporter from the Daily Journal, along with the jail matron and a guard, were with her. <laughs> jail matron. The jail matron. Right. Wow. Uh, for, Could you have for, updated that language maybe no, a little bit? No, no. We've got to stick with the times. We've never had a jail matron before in an episode of Midwest Murder, so I, I needed to have that in there. Speaking with the reporter while smoking cigarettes, Cindy said, quote, I never really asked for much in my life, but now I'm praying and asking those jurors to find me innocent because I am innocent. I love those kids. I don't think God could ever forgive someone that did anything like that. On Monday, May 10th, 1976, just after 7 p.m., Cindy White was found guilty on all counts against her. After a moment of stunned silence took hold of the courtroom, Cindy White let out a tormented cry. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. She kept repeating it as she was drugged from the courtroom. After being escorted back to the kitchen, Cindy made a sad but sad and feeble effort at suicide, grabbing a paring knife near the sink and attempting to slash her wrist. She was quickly stopped before the knife could pierce her skin. Cindy White was sentenced to the Indiana Women's Prison for not less than five nor more than 20 years on the arson conviction. 
She was sentenced to the Indiana women's prison, quote, for enduring life on each of the six murder convictions. At 18 years old, Cindy White was officially a mass murderer and under current Indiana law would never be eligible for parole. Following that conviction, Cindy initiated the first of many appeals. In seeking a new trial, the appeal challenged the evidence, the inclusion of the polygraph, and elements of arson beyond a reasonable doubt. The appeal was denied. Then, in 1979, a change in Indiana law made it possible for prisoners with life sentences to be considered for parole. However, this new law was not retroactive and did not establish a means to determine if or when people sentenced prior to 79 should be eligible. This, too, would eventually lead to an appeal from Cindy, but we have more to unpack before we get to that. After losing the appeal, Cindy began quietly serving her time. She made a few friends, worked in several jobs at the prison, took courses to be a nurse's aide, and was considered a model inmate. In 1986, Cindy's 97-year-old grandmother addressed the parole board in a plea for clemency, her first. She was supported, the grandma was supported by Edna and Byron Hiddle, members of the community who felt Cindy was mistreated at trial and who supported her pleas for clemency. The couple befriended Cindy following the trial. They didn't know her prior. Cindy still, to this point, denied setting the fire, and in spite of the added support, her bid for clemency was denied. Cindy tried again in 1987. This is when Cindy's truth finally came out. The depth of her sad history, as well as the wicked secrets burned in the fire of the Robertson home. Born in the late 50s and raised in Indiana, Sarah Isabel Cindy White was one of six children born to an alcoholic mother and an abusive father. According to Cindy, her father first sexually abused her at the age of eight years old when he takes Cindy with to fix up old trucks and cars at the garage. When Cindy told her mother of the abuse, her mother's advice, don't be in the same room alone with your dad. Then, as you'll recall, Cindy's father died of a heart attack and she was with him when it happened. Cindy's mental health spiraled downward following the death of her father. When she was admitted to the mental hospital, Cindy was experiencing paralysis in one of her legs and was exhibiting signs of psychosis. Throughout her almost year-long stay in the hospital, Cindy never spoke of the abuse she claimed to have been a victim of as an adult. The The shame she felt over it was nearly as overwhelming as the trauma. It was just prior to hospitalization that Cindy met the Robertson family while working her paper route. Carol often visited Cindy in the the hospital, and Cindy was offered a place to stay and work as a live-in nanny to the Robertson family. For the first time, Cindy White felt hopeful. She loved the Robertson children. The kindness of Carol Robertson helped Cindy get through her troubled stay at the psychiatric hospital. But not, but not long after moving in with the Robertsons, Charles began making advances towards Cindy. She was initially flattered by the attention, but it wasn't long before that attention 
transformed into abuse. But she was a victim, and so that that was the only way that she had been shown love by her father in the past. Yes. That's the that's, only way. It's She only knew a victim's life. Way. According to Cindy, Charles forced her to watch porn with him while he masturbated. Sometimes he'd force Cindy to, address, to undress and perform oral sex on him. Other times, Charles invited his friends to watch. Cindy assumed Carol had no idea what a monster Charles was, but Carol was actually in on it with her husband. No. I did not see that part coming. It was Carol who took the pictures of Cindy. Oh, man. When Carol walked in on Cindy and Charles one day and told them not to stop on her account, it became clear Carol was complicit in the depravity. According to Cindy, as I said, it was actually Carol who snapped the naked Polaroids. In the winter of 1975, Charles came home to find Cindy White packing. She planned to leave. Charles was livid. He locked Cindy in the bedroom, returned a few minutes later with a small animal, and killed the poor animal right in front of Cindy and told her the same thing would happen to her if she didn't obey. It was in the days following Christmas of that year that Cindy's grandma's house caught fire. In Cindy's words, this gave her an idea. If she set a fire in the Robertson house, the home would become unlivable, and she could then escape. Cindy White finally admitted to being the one who set the fire. It was hours after chatting with her sister about the fire at her grandmother's house, Cindy White started a fire in the Robertson home using a few pieces of paper behind the Christmas tree. She never intended for anyone to get hurt, but the fire and fumes spread with lightning speed and the fire got out of control fast. As we know, Cindy claims she tried to help the family escape, but got overwhelmed and had to jump out a bedroom window. Now, what experts feel like really seems to have happened is that Cindy set the fire and went outside, expecting the family would wake and flee from the house. But then, when it looked like it was totally out of control, she smashed a window in from the outside, which blew a massive blast of heat and fire at her, knocking her back and unconscious into the backyard. This is why she only experienced superficial burns and why her highly flammable pajamas did not catch fire. In spite of Cindy's newfound admittance to setting the fire, there were still a lot of holes in her story, and the shocking revelations of abuse were not enough to sway parole voters who again denied her plea for clemency. Even if the abuse claims were true, at this point, nobody felt she served enough time. Between 1986 and 1991, Cindy White made seven appearances before a clemency board and was denied each time. In the 1991 ruling, the parole board determined she would never be eligible. In fact, they told her the only way you'd be getting out of prison was in a box feet first. Charitable attorney Charlie Asher was among those leading the charge for Cindy in her bids for clemency. In a 1990, in 1996, a post-conviction relief suit was filed. Dr. Richard Lawler testifies that Cindy was suffering from PTSD during her trial. 
Cindy's claims that she was abused both by her dad and the Robertsons, and it was never brought up at trial. In fact, she never publicly mentioned any abuse until 10 years after she was convicted. Of course, she later claimed that she stayed silent about the abuse out of embarrassment and that she decided to speak out when she did for her own healing as well as the possibility of helping someone else. This is everything they're bringing to the table to you know, try to, of course, like justify her pleas for clemency. Also helping her were a former nun as well as a former parole board member. And Charlie, her lawyer, was suing the Indiana Parole Board for wrongly denying her opportunity to request parole. Cindy's sister, Serna, came forward and corroborated Cindy's claims of sexual abuse, but not from the father or from Charles Robertson. The abuse that Serna solidified and corroborated was from Cindy's older brother. Cindy, the oldest of four girls, did a lot to protect her younger sisters. Serna didn't recall if their father was abusive, but their older brother abused them both. Serna claims her grandmother told her to just keep it quiet. With no evidence to substantiate the abuse claims against the Robertsons, coupled with the fact that it took more than a decade for her to make the claim, a lot of people attacked the convenience of Cindy's accusations against the dead. Quote, I believe that these allegations are fabricated. When no one's around to defend themselves from the allegations, all of a sudden these people become the worst people in the world. In a 1997 appeal, Cindy argued that she was not competent to stand trial in 1976 due to her psychological and emotionally stunted growth caused by mental illness resulting from the sexual abuse she suffered at the hands of her father, brother, and Charles and Carol Robertson. Despite her claims, county prosecutor Lance Hammer stated that, quote, sexual abuse is not an excuse for murder. All of her lawyers' lawsuits failed, and in 1999, another hopeful appeal was denied. In the ruling of the court, the court of appeals noted, quote, At the time of White's conviction, inmates serving life sentences were not intended by the legislature to be included in those classes of, in, of inmates who could become eligible for parole. That means that the clemency proceeding was her only alternative but prosecutors and parole boards consistently denied her clemency. Quote, the legal record shows six life sentences, six people killed, and a life sentence imposed for each death. Finally, although the legislature in 1979 provided parole eligibility to those serving, quote, a life sentence, the legislature specifically denied the possibility of parole to anyone serving more than one life sentence. So that 99 appeal was based solely on whether or not the updated laws from 79 should impact the ruling on Cindy. At this point, Cindy White had been imprisoned for more time than any woman in Indiana history. When their final Hail Mary effort was denied, Things went quiet until 2015 when Cindy's story was given a very sympathetic look on the show Facing Evil with Candace DeLong. Candace said of Cindy's case, quote, I think it's one of the greatest miscarriages of justice 
I've witnessed. DeLong, a former FBI profiler and homicide expert, called White the fifth child victim in the Robertson case. After 39 years of imprisonment, Cindy White, now mostly wheelchair-bound after two strokes, deserves freedom. Another major point Asher argued her lawyer was the deeper psychological impact that years of abuse and trauma had on Cindy's brain development. Both her emotional and decision-making capabilities were stunted, diminished by trauma, and she didn't get suitable care that addressed the abuse during her time at Carter Hospital. Quote, At some point, we have to ask, are we really protecting society when we punish abused teenagers by putting them in prison and throwing away the key? As of this recording, Cindy White still resides in the Indiana State Women's Penitentiary. She holds the longest record of detainment in state history with 46 years of time served and intentional or not, is one of Indiana's most prolific killers. I wish I had long sleeves so I could roll them up. It, this girl uh, did not get a fair shake, Don Palumbo. She just didn't. Under no circumstances at any point am I saying that, um, you know, that, that family should have been murdered, right? I'm, it's certainly not condoning what she did. That being said, I mean, there's, there's scientific proof that shows trauma changes your brain. Yes. PTSD changes your brain. It makes co- cognitive changes in your brain. Physiological actual changes, yes. Cognitive. You don't yep. think the same. You don't act the same. You're in constant fight or flight yep. mode. Constant. You're in constant survival mode. And so being raised to think that sexual abuse is the way affection uh, is shown is, is, you know, I mean, no wonder, no wonder she engaged in that kind of behavior with, with someone who she looked at as a father figure. That's all she ever knew. And if, if we would have been, I was, I, I made notes earlier because if the system would have intervened prior to this, she would have never, it, it would have never gotten to that level. In the feeling I gathered from her time at the psychiatric hospital was like, oh, this is a just a hysterical, panicky young woman can't handle life, you know? I don't know if there was enough effort to really, by them, to drill down on on what the actual cause of, of her, of this happening to her was. What do you mean? Uh, well, at her time, she spent 10 months in a psychiatric hospital with partial paralysis and, you know, fainting spells and stuff and some clear because, signs because, of trauma. Because that is it, a sign. Of course. And right. and they, the doctors there did very little to identify those issues. They didn't we even know perfor- she was sexually we were, abused. We were still performing lobotomies in the 70s. Of course, they're not right. going to look at that and be like... There must be trauma here. So, no, she was just a batshit crazy kid who was probably looking for attention. Right. You know, that that's so when we know better, we do better. Right. And, and, you know, you think about 
all like all of uh, somebody who struggled with mental illness in the seventies. Right. I, I mean, they were all treated like shit. And, and I think for no one to ask those questions for no one to even be just think that, that something was, was could potentially be wrong and then proceed to victim blame her for decades. Yes. For that was one of the main things that really bothered me is they played her off as being an 18 year old that seduced this 42 year old man. And listen, with, with all due respect to Cindy, okay. She, she was not on the cover of magazines, right? She, okay. She, she like, I, I could, I could buy that. If you could, if you could sell it in that package, you can't in this, in this state, you just can't. This is a, perverted man that took advantage of somebody and his wife freaking helped him. And so right. I, I, and, but maybe they didn't cause we just don't know. Right. There's again, you've got one person's word against unfortunately people who lost their lives. And, and then, and to, to the public, to the parole board, all the parole board sees is we don't care how fucked up your life was. You did some shit that killed four babies right. and I don't, and you can right. rot forever. That's, that's their feeling. And that doesn't feel fair either. I, I don't know. Isn't four? I don't know. Is forty years not enough? Uh, I, is forty years not enough? I don't know. You know what? I don't know if we can ever. I, I don't think there is an answer to that. I mean, when you're, you know, you're there. No, if it were malicious, if we're, you know, there's, it's a, there are so many ins and outs of that. I, I don't think you can even ask. I don't think it's it, that question is being is capable of being asked. No, it's a, it's, a, it's it's a super hard question. I guess, Don, what it really comes back to. For me, what I what I try to consider in the end with some of these more difficult choices like this, that is where intent comes up for me. And I think that intent when murder happens does matter for, for me and my decision making process. I'm not saying it's the best way or the right way, but the way my human brain works is that intent matters. And and the intent in this one, the trauma that that Cindy faced. I feel like 39 years is enough, but I don't think she'll ever see the light of day. No, um, no at this I point, I agree with with her not seeing the light of day. I it, it's it's still, so it's so tough. I, I mean, it, it is so tough, and I, I can't I can't imagine being. I've never had to serve on a jury. We're never going to get the chance. And, and now. because I'm sitting at this table, there's yeah. a good damn chance I never will. Thank yeah. God. Um, I was I always wanted to, and then never. I started doing a true crime podcast. No, and it's like, yeah, you're not getting on. But but I think with with that, and then and then you know, looking at it from a jury or looking at it from a parole board perspective, I wouldn't I wouldn't want that job. No, you know, I wouldn't want no. that. No. But for these assholes to be like, well, the only way you're getting out of here is you know, in a pine Feet box, first but, in a box. Yeah. yeah like, and, and just pretty I, callous but when I, back in 91 though, things and were that was before, back she, in 91. That was, but that was also before she had talked about the abuse too. It was right? just, so, no, it was, it was, it was just, it was just after. Okay. Yeah. She talked about the abuse for the first time in 87. Okay. So, uh, about 11 years after her first bid for clemency, she didn't. So again, people attack the fact that she never talked about that until it became which, convenient. Oh, you could which have when developed I said, that story. When I said yeah. victim blaming, that's what I meant. Of course. You know, because yep. like, like, that's one of the ones that goes you know, in there. Yeah. And I, I mean, we will, we will never come up with, we'll never come up with the right answer. No. And, you know, you look at episode two, we covered, we covered Michael Neugebauer, who is still in and out of the Supreme court because he was, you know, he was a, a teenager and he murdered his, his entire family. But 
it was, and it was around this time frame, you know, 92, 93. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, I'll and then of course, and of course nobody, nobody wants, you know, nobody wants to, um, you, you have, you have two schools of thinking, right? The bastard did it. He deserves to fry. Right. Yeah. And then you have the, of like, there's more to that story. And again, not condoning what, what these people have done by any means. It's not okay. But we have a deep, we have to have a deeper understanding of it. I think. I, I, w- I will say, I think, I think there, there is a reason why, why most states in the country have passed laws right. that prevent us from putting teenagers into life in prison when well, they and, commit and these in crimes. Well, in North Dakota, Nugabauer so, was the reason for that. The case, there, you know, there's a reason we've made that decision as a society. So, of course, we that don't... Wouldn't, that wouldn't have fit here because she was 18. 18, yeah, maybe not. And that was kind of their argument that she wasn't a true 18 because of no. the emotional, psychological no. stuntedness. No. But yeah. No. So it, it really tough choice uh, either way. And um, yeah. terrible, terrible. Uh, sources for this episode of mini of Minneapolis murder. I'm sorry. The, the source <laughs> of the Indianapolis I'm, Star. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Indianapolis, Midwest. Sources for this episode of Midwest murder. The Indianapolis Star, stories by John Carpenter, John Flora, Scott Miley, Pat Pemberton, and Tim Evans. The Daily Journal story by Terry Anderson, IndyStar.com. The White versus Court, State Appeals Documents and Court Documents, Justia.com, and InterestingFacts.com, as well as PeopleOfHistory.com and RetroWaste.com, Midwest Murder is hosted by myself, the guy, Jonah Lanto, and the gal over here to my left, Don Palumbo, and is produced by the Good Talk Network. This episode was written by Jonah, myself, and Sioux City, South Dakota. Yeah. Jesus. I I can't even get it right. Did you say say South Dakota? I said Sioux City, South Dakota, yes. First, we're Minneapolis. I can never do Sioux Falls and Sioux City back to back again. It's just too much for my brain to handle. It is. It's way too much. First, we're Minneapolis murder. I'm all over the place, Don Colombo. And then it's Sioux City, South Dakota. Like, dude, I'm I'm not leaving with you today. Like, you're, (laughs) no, they're going to kick your ass, and rightfully so. First time in Iowa. Here <laughs> we are. You, and you frick it up. Good job. And I forget. No, it wasn't. It wasn't that. City right, state wrong. I'd rather. No, do, I didn't say I'd you forget. I said yeah. you fr- you fricked it up. Yeah, I That's flubbed it. I, I yeah. flubbed it. But mm-hmm. at the marquee, we appreciate you guys. Yeah, thank thank you, you guys. so much. <laughs>